Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Today, my name is Terry Fletcher, and it is the last Tuesday of the month, so you know what that means. It is Top 10 Tuesday, and I'm going to focus a little on telehealth since we just had the PHE renewed, the public health emergency, and there are is a lot of auditing going on, and I just want you to have a checklist of things you should be looking at when you are making sure you're compliant with telehealth and that you're looking at all angles when you're trying to make sure that you're not in any kind of compliance risk with telehealth. Uh, Currently, the Office of Inspector General, they published a report in September, and it's called Medicare Telehealth Services During the First Year of the Pandemic Program Integrity Risks. And there's measures in there that explain what they found, and some of the things are not good. So if your practice makes a mistake, a lot of the healthcare attorneys out there are saying it's not the end of the world as long as you take the right uh, steps in response. And a lot of times those steps in response are not just self-reporting, but if you find errors, but also making sure that you have a corrective action plan. It means that you've identified the problem, your, your plan is to fix the problem, everyone's been educated on the problem and how to fix it, and you have that in writing. So one of the things I know that has been really tough, and you heard me probably say this before, is everyone had to pivot pretty quickly uh, when we hit the pandemic in 2020, which was March 1st. So it actually was January, but the implementation of the telehealth expansion uh, and the, under the CARES Act, the waivers 1135, basically it was everybody saying, okay, how does this work? And I was teaching telehealth for a couple of years before the pandemic hit, but it was it looked a lot different than it does now. So we had originating sites that was not the patient's home. We had distant sites that were a little bit different. And if they were in a facility, that site could charge for different things. So there was just a lot of billing rules that had changed almost 95%. So here's some steps that you can take when you review your practices, telehealth claims, and you really need to review them. I, I can't stress enough how important it is to review these claims because the OIG, the HHS, um, CMS, they are now saying, okay, we're reaching the endemic. You should have known better. And we gave you the rules after rules after rules in the fee-for-service FAQ sheets. And there's no reason why you shouldn't have done it correctly. So let me just make sure that you have that checklist. And um, you, may, you may need to play this back at a later time just so that you can um, actually write it down. So first of all, read the data brief, okay? The OIG data brief, it's actually a pretty useful compliance roadmap for providers, and it should inspire both providers and telemedicine companies, because I know they're kind of in your face a little bit, to take a closer look at internal coding, billing, auditing, and monitoring practices. You have to have checks and balances. Otherwise, what's happening right now, especially in behavioral health and certain primary care practices, is that they are reporting telehealth incorrectly um, for the convenience of the patient, not because they're trying to slow or stop the spread of COVID. Remember, we just had the public health emergency renewed, which goes through January 15th, 2023, And yes, certain flexibilities are still there, but we will have an end date. And I actually could bet my life on this one that um, this is the last one. So 
unless there is such a surge where we see a 50% increase in what we're seeing now, I just don't see it being renewed. Mainly because we also have the CAA, which is the Consolidation Appropriations Act, which was an act of Congress in 2022 updated that allows for another 151 days of some of the flexibilities to still be in place once the PHE ends, which will help with the transition. And so, and also uh, there's some, um, I think they're part three, they call them or category three of the telehealth list that basically it says that those will end at the end of the year that the pandemic ends. So they still are going to be at the end of next year. So it's, you know, everybody's like, oh my gosh, when it ends, you know, we don't have a chance. You should always be planning. So the first thing, number one was being, would be read the data brief. It's very helpful. The next thing, increase your red flag knowledge. So the HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, they actually have a list of common telehealth billing mistakes when you review claims. So first of all, the wrong codes. The wrong code can delay payments or cause improper payments. So can the wrong modifier. I see that a lot of practices forgot to put the 95 modifier on and now payers are saying, well, you didn't put that on, so that means you told us you build an E&M service saying that the patient was in clinic because we still use the place of service where they would have been had the, had we not had a pandemic and you're falsely reporting that code and so that you know that's a problem you have to put the 95 on it to reflect uh, during the the public health emergency that that is a telehealth visit so that's being flagged if you didn't put that on there some of the payers the medicare administrative uh, contractors are asking for that money back also, for those of you that build for office visits for telephone codes and audio only, you're, you could be in trouble because that's an improper coding. So you want to make sure you're not coding for that. And then also for anybody that coded office, or I'm sorry, uh, phone call codes, the 99441 to 443 and the 98966 to 98968 for staff who can report it, not RNs not LVNs, LPNs, but like clinical social workers, physical therapists, et cetera. And you didn't, you weren't mindful of first the um, established patient uh, guideline and also the seven day, I call it a global guideline, meaning that there cannot be a related uh, visit within seven days. So let's say that you have a patient that either came into the office or had a E&M service under telehealth virtual. And so you build it, let's say a 99214. Patient comes back, let's say calls back three or four days later to get a clarification on their medication. That is free. It's always been free. It's a clarification. Even if they called back two weeks later, you can't have it. But the big problem with that there is you're now not only in violation of medical necessity rules um, and of compliance rules, but you're in violation of the rules for phone call codes. First of all, it has to be something that is uh, something that you would bill in, in place of an ENM. Do you have a patient come in if they need a clarification? And secondly, there's that seven day rule. So I'm seeing that happen all the time and that's a problem. Also the wrong documentation, you have to document. So in addition to meeting the documentation requirements for the services, you also have to document whether the patient gave you verbal or written consent to conduct a virtual appointment. It's a little gray in the FAQ, FF, um, fee-for-service FFS sheet, but it's in there. And according to the HHS, it says also the provider must clearly document whether the connection was audio and video only or audio only. So they wanna know what you're doing, that you have to make sure that it's in there. Another common mistake, and this is something that's really important, 
is is that if the healthcare provider is billing on time, and this is also an ENM mistake, they're including time that the patient spent with the clinical staff. So they're timing the visit as soon as the visit is, if it's um, telehealth is turned on, if you will. And so now the staff is getting a consent, the staff is getting vitals, the staff is, you know, doing stuff to prepare for the, the chart. And they're trying to use that total time of that visit uh, is to level their service and they can't do that. Remember the ENM services, you still have to follow their guidelines and the total time has to be only what the provider spent, not the ancillary staff. So only what you spent with the patient, meaning the provider can be uh, used for time. Can the other staff do all those services? Absolutely, you just can't count it towards the time of the visit. And so, and it's made a big difference, the difference between level threes and fours and level fours and fives um, and my auditing uh, services. So I'm just like, oh my goodness, you guys have to stop doing that. Also, you don't really need to drop everything and start a full scale review of every claim if you find one error, but don't ignore an error. So if you find that there is an error, find out what caused that mistake, figure out the scope of that error. So is it something that was repeated and ongoing? And if it, there should be an overpayment, then you need to send that back. Conduct a thorough analysis of what caused the errors, error. So if, you know, the organization should find the root cause of, you know, what triggered this error or what somebody knew or didn't know. I know sometimes, I'm sure some of you have heard this, well, we were told to do it that way. By whom? I get a lot of people saying, um, well, we were told, okay, who told you that? And they look at each other going, um, I don't know. Well, you need to find out who actually told you that. So you also need to make sure that you're not always, and I'm air quoting, doing things the way we always have. So this was specifically because of the pandemic that we've been able to open up telehealth. It is going to stay open to a certain extent once the PHE ends, once the CCA expires, CAA expires, but they're closing off phone calls once that expires, except on uh, for mental and behavioral health on a short leash. So for certain diagnoses, so be careful with that. And then, you know, I say this, but it's, it's not to generate business for me. I mean, you know, call me if you need me and we can set something up. But if you discover a serious issue, such as dozens of incorrect claims or signs that could point to, and I hate to use the word fraud, but a fraudulent problem, or let's just say a false claim act issue, then this is where you need to work either with somebody in council or you need to get a more expansive audit. And I would strongly urge you to look outside of your practice. And that's something we do. So feel free to, you know, send us an email if you feel like you need to, you don't have the staff to do an internal audit and you want us to take a look. So, um, you know, right now I'm, I think I have Oh my goodness, for telehealth audits, I'm looking right now, I've got 190 that I'm looking at, and I'm looking at another 400 for a payer. So I do both payer and physician audits. And it actually gives me a good insight because I can see, you know, something, if a Medicare payer contracts with me or a commercial plan, United Healthcare just loves to say, hey, I need some help. Or, uh, you know, the physicians themselves. So different specialties, different practice, just in, just to see how they got their information, 
how it was utilized and then what's happening with, especially within multiple, multiple physician practices, because you always have an outlier. There's always somebody that says, well, I want to do it this way. Or you get another provider that came from an outside clinic and they're like, well, this is what we did in where I used to work. Well, that doesn't mean that's what you do here. And so it's just really important to take a look. Don't push this to the side because they are definitely, when I say they, HHS and Medicare, they're coming for you. So are the private payers. And document everything you do, okay? If it isn't documents, not done, everybody says that. That also applies to compliance efforts, you know, as well as physicians' work and, you know, medical record documentation. A written record of the steps the practice took will help build the practice compliance plan and prevent mistakes in the future. And if the worst happens and you are investigated, then you can actually show the government or the payer that you tried to do the right thing and your intent was to identify corrective action and not let it happen again. And if it's necessary to refund, if there's something that you do find. And this is such an important concept uh, for payers to know that your, your head's up about it, that you don't basically just find something when somebody else catches you. So it's something that internally or hire somebody externally to take a look at these things to make sure that you're on the up and up, that you are compliant and that you're not going to have a problem as we now get into the fourth quarter of 2022. Biggest thing to keep in mind, first of all, are you still doing the telehealth to slow or slop, stop the spread of COVID? I can't stop saying slop. It's <laughs> stop. Um, if that is the case, then you, you're fine. Like I have... Um, Oncology practices, those patients have compromised immune systems. I can see that. Uh, certain cardiovascular patients, COPD, you know, uh, AFib, patients that really have a hard time getting around or they've got respiratory issues, my pulmonary offices. But if you have healthy patients in an otherwise protected practice where everybody's vaccinated, everybody, you know, you, you're following the protocols um, for keeping things as clean as possible and sterilized, and the patient's just there because of convenience, because they don't want to travel or they don't want to park or they don't want to, you know, get in their car. You could have a problem that may not be acting in bad, in good faith. It could be acting in bad faith. So check with the payer. I know, for example, with my insurance, I have an EPO and it's, I think it's under Blue Cross Blue Shield Anthem. I do have telehealth coverage, but here's the kicker. I can't go to my normal doctor. If I want a telehealth visit where they waive the copay and the deductible, I actually have to use their panel physicians. And I know a lot of, of insurance companies have incorporated that practice back after the ended a lot of the waivers and a lot of the uh, pandemic changes. Um, some, some people have, you know, insurance that will allow them to see their own physician uh, for a, a, a telehealth, but there are rules on there. And there's also out-of-pockets and there's also maybe some limitations on how often they can do that. I actually have one payer in the Cigna um, payer pl plan that actually has specific diagnoses that you can use for telehealth. If you don't fall in that diagnosis category, then they don't do it. Because remember, the only thing that the payers have to do is offer it. They don't have to cover everything. So Medicare is still about the same. The only change with Medicare that they came up with in um, April, they finally told us, is that the government does not run the states when it comes to um, cross-state care. So if you have a, a patient that's in um, Florida and your doctor is in New York, that doctor cannot treat or see the patient in Florida via telehealth unless they are licensed in the state where the patient is is and so that's a really big deal 
Make sure you're checking on your state information as well and the dates that those waivers um, expired. Okay, so my coding question today, even though that was a little bit coding, I just, I did want to also offer a coding question because I thought this was interesting. So many of you know that I am, cardiology is my number one specialty. Well, it's not my only specialty, but it is my number one specialty. So a question came in uh, about cardiac ablations and there was an ablation in the pulmonary vein for atrial fibrillation, 93656. And then the question was, once the procedure was performed, the physician crossed the right atrium and the patient continued to have symptoms, which was documented as a flutter. Since the provider lists an additional diagnosis in a separate chamber, can we also code the 93657 for this procedure? So here's the thing on that. Additional symptoms doesn't mean additional diagnosis isolate, and that's what they're looking for. Also remember, a flutter is not a fib. It is a symptom that could lead to atrial fibrillation, but it's not atrial fibrillation. So it's it's basically just kind of a weakened area. And the 93657 add-on code for an additional ablation um, area is not, again, not to complete the original ablation, is for AFib. So you may have some payers saying that's not atrial fibrillation, that's just a sign that there could be some areas there that the doctor needs to clean up. So you kind of take your chances if you try to code for that based on an A-flutter diagnosis. It would have to be AFib for that to be reimbursed without, without an issue there. My personal tidbit this week, oh my goodness, it's been such a tough transition to come back from vacation in Hawaii and then get back into work, but I'm doing it. I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> it's just hard sometimes because all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, the ketchup is crazy. But I just wanted to kind of shout out the Hawaiian people, the Four Seasons. We had such a good time and I'm still tan. I actually feel like one big freckle, but uh, we had a great time and there's nothing better than great customer service, just really making myself, my husband, my daughter and her husband just feel really welcome and it was a great family time. So Back to work, though. Um, I also celebrated my birthday there, so it's always fun to know that you live another year. And we also had a Steelers win on my day back, so I was pretty excited about that. Beating Tom Brady, no matter what the situation is, just warms my heart. So that's where we're at with that. So let's hope we can have another win in Miami this weekend. All right, everyone, make it a great day. That's it for me this, this week and actually this month. The next time you will hear from me will be on November 1st. And everyone, just make it a great day, a great week week and thank you for listening to the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma, music producer Assassin Music. <laughs>